1: The current atmosphere of the Portuguese wine market can be traced in part to the politics of Charles II. Charles II lived what is probably one of the craziest lives in human history, even for a European monarch. His biography presents as someone who is a little bit of a hot mess, who encounters numerous zany situations. Seriously, Hollywood writers couldn't make his biography up. It would be too unbelievable. He had 12 children with seven mistresses, but none with his wife. He was hunted by Parliament, escaped in disguise, and then asked back to be the king. And he reigned over two of the most traumatic social issues in London's history— a plague outbreak and a huge fire. Now, the idea of an English crown had been in the works since about 400 A.D., So by the time Charles II was born in 1630, there was about 1,200 years of precedence for the monarchy. But it just so happened that the foundation crumbled during Charles II's adolescence. Amidst civil war and fighting religious factions, Oliver Cromwell, a Puritan who gained political power, helped orchestrate the execution of Charles I, Charles II's father. Before Charles II's 20th birthday, his father was beheaded in one of the most incredible political shifts in history. Cromwell took over and Parliament gained power. With the execution of King Charles I, things were not looking good for Charles II. He hung out in Scotland for a while. They were kind to him in hopes that he would advance their religious agenda if they could restore him to the monarchy. But England advanced into Scotland, And eventually, Charles II had to flee. He narrowly escaped capture by climbing up in a tree and hiding there for at least a day, with troops passing directly below him. Charles was over six feet tall, and he had a massive bounty on his head. So his escape to exile in France was rather impressive. He did it by passing himself off as a servant, and eventually made his way to his cousin Louis XIV. When Cromwell died, political uncertainty led Parliament to ask him back as king. And by his 30th birthday, he was received back to London amidst incredible pomp and circumstance. One of the first things he did was pretty disgusting. He had Oliver Cromwell dug up from the grave and posthumously executed by hanging him. In fact, he punished everyone who had been directly involved in his father's beheading but he granted amnesty to just about everyone else. But part of the terms of his return with Parliament was a change in the way money was handled. Parliament would now control the treasury and Charles II would get a hefty allowance. Possibly influenced by his cousin Louis XIV, Charles picked up some extravagant habits, including wine and food habits. In 1665, Charles II dealt with a massive plague outbreak with thousands of people dying in the city each week. Thousands of people each week. Then, when the plague subsided and things finally started to settle down, in 1666, the Great Fire of London swept through and destroyed massive amounts of infrastructure, including over 13,000 homes. Perhaps it was the Desperate times, or the uncertainty of the times, that led Charles II to indulge in pretty much all of his desires. He spent much of his time and money on his court, and on his mistresses and many illegitimate children. Over time, public and parliament annoyance grew at his luxury spending habits. In 1679, anger over his spending and fears that Charles II might try to spread Catholicism through the land, Parliament became very uncooperative with him, and they greatly restricted his funds. They essentially cut him off. They also embargoed wines from France. What did Charles do? Unable to get wines from France, he looked to Portugal, as did the rest of England, and Portuguese wine sales soared trade routes were solidified, a scramble to stock orders occurred, and history was made. Today, port is known all over the world. You'll find it in just about every restaurant you can imagine. But I wonder, what would the port wine scene be like today if Charles II, a tree-hiding, enemy-escaping, great-firefighting, towering king, hadn't provoked Parliament to the point of cutting off his French wine supply? Stay tuned to hear more from one of today's most popular port producers.
0: It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Leap, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at OffsetPartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, Partners with an S, dot com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Adrian Bridge, CEO of the Taylor-Flaggate Group on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you?
2: Very well, indeed. It's tremendous to be here, straight from Portugal. Have a chance
0: to talk a little bit about what we get up to over there. It's great to have you here. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the people who came before you, the previous generation of what is now known as the Taylor-Flaggate Group.
2: Yeah, for us, really, the story must go back to uh, Dick Aitman, because, you know, it's a family business, that goes right the way back to 1692 – we have about four generations of the Beersleys who set it up. And then we have a, a mixture of people, including at the Yatemans who come in in 1838. And that travels all the way down to Dick Yateman. Uh, and Dick was a very interesting guy because Dick uh, actually studied in Montpellier in France, was a trained winemaker, which was unusual at his time. He did a lot of plantings, individual varietal plantings at Vagelis. You know, the 1927 vineyard which he planted is still there. That's and
0: the basis of the Taylor brand.
2: Well, you know, Vargelis is the the heart and soul of Taylors. So we have as Taylors a number of different properties, but probably Vargellus is the one that's best known. And it's certainly probably the most emblematic that is in the Douro Valley, which is a valley full of extraordinary vineyards. So, you know what was interesting about that is Dick was a winemaker. He loved his ports. He didn't particularly like selling them. He was a wealthy man. He didn't have uh, any children. He brought up uh, Alice Robertson, who's my father-in-law, so that um, when he, in fact, died, he passed it. The company on to Alistair, but prior to that, he had employed a couple of other people. One called um, Hewish Bauer, um, who was very much focused on the commercial development of Taylor's, and another one called Bruce Gimmerines, who was very much involved in particularly Fonseca and was the winemaker or the um, estates director for Fonseca. So these three gentlemen formed a, a very key period from the late 50s through to the 90s, a time when port was really developing in a number of markets around the world moving away from uh, its reliance just on the uk market but interestingly at a time when a number of different styles of port were becoming uh, were coming to market so if you look in the 30s 40s 50s port really was all about vintage port and ruby port and there wasn't much in between And you get to the 70s and you find that Alistair introduces uh, late bottle vintage, a totally new style of port. uh, Reserve ports with things like the Fonseca Bin 27, that comes to market. And then aged tourneys, which up until that time had typically been sold under brand names like uh, Viceroy or Regent or something like that, become simplified. They become indicated with their age. So it's very clear, a 10-year-old, a 20, a 30, or 40. And that really helps consumers. And so what we find through the 70s, 80s, and 90s is that the range of port is expanded. The journey that an individual consumer can take through the port category uh, becomes much richer and, in a sense, much more obvious to follow.
0: That's interesting because we think of port as this really ancient historical object but here's 1970s 80s that's not so long ago major introductions of really kind of new categories of port that are often sort of defined by what color it is
2: well that's certainly true i mean the the uh, terminology that's used is ruby ports and tawny ports but i think we should go deeper into that because for me that color differentiation is is very simplistic it's a bit like saying wine is you know red and white yes of course that's true but then The descriptor ruby and tawny tend to be applied to the very cheapest part of the port repertoire, and that sort of cheap end, that commodity end of port represents about 80% of the production, mostly done nowadays by co-ops and sold in markets like France, Holland, Belgium, uh, and the domestic Portuguese market. When we look at something like the United States, the interest you have in port here is with what we would call special category ports. It's that top 20%. And that's the reserves, the LBVs, the aged tourneys, and vintage port. That's really where the focus is. And, and to be honest, that's where the real interest, the winemaking, the uh, creativity, and, and
0: quite clearly the quality is. So what do you think that they were responding to that they introduced those categories? Was it market conditions or production conditions or both? When- Hewish and Bruce and Alistair decided, hey, it's not just vintage port anymore, and it's not just bulk Ruby port anymore. There's things also that need to be introduced that are going to matter. What were they responding to? Yeah, I think we're responding to the reality of the port industry, which goes through cycles. And
2: certainly following the Second World War, port was a luxury, particularly vintage port. Vintage port tends to be the most expensive expression of what we do. And therefore, in that sort of more austere period following the war, was definitely a luxury. But I think it's more than that. And that is that through the late 60s, you started to see many of the restaurants, particularly restaurants who would be serving vintage port at the end of a meal, um, seeing their sales decline because port needs to have special handling. You, know, you Typically it's an old port, it needs to be decanted, special serving, it's expensive, it's best consumed within 24 hours of opening. So you find yourself in a situation where a restaurateur may be offering port Buy the glass, suddenly, you know, seven consumers around a table, uh, all wanting a glass of port. He's got enough to pour six people. Uh, Does he open another bottle, which he may not sell that evening, or does he persuade the seventh person to have a cognac or some other digestive? And so, really that attitude was I think uh, becoming more pervasive in the market and the thought process of, of Alistair was let's produce a what we call a late bottle vintage so you know obviously a wine from an individual year it's got the characteristics the structure the tannic weight and the, that individuality that comes from an individual year but instead of bottling when it's two years old which you would with a normal vintage port it's bottled later five or six years after harvest and that additional time being spent in large wooden vats of you know thirty 000, forty thousand liters means that that it becomes ready to drink. And I think the innovation that that Alistair also uh, came across was this idea of putting it through a cold filtration. And so what essentially happens is by dropping the temperature, you're going to drop out a lot of those tartrates that would otherwise form as a deposit. So suddenly you've got a product that has only just recently been bottled. It's got a shelf life even once opened of around about four to six weeks. It doesn't need to be decanted. And it's availably uh, priced, if you like. It's, it's not as expensive as vintage port. So suddenly the restauranteurs had something they could serve, just pop the cork and pour from the bottle. And from that, from that early moment that was orientated more towards the restaurant industry, for the reason it became popular in restaurants, became popular at home. Because, again, someone could open the bottle, have a couple of glasses, then come back to it in a week's time, and it would still be in great condition.
0: And a lot of commercial success followed the Taylor LBV and also the introduction of what you could think of as a premium ruby following somewhat similar ideas of filtered, available to drink as soon as you open it from Fonseca called Bin 27.
2: Well, that's right. Ben 27 plays an important role in this. I think with, within the late bottle vintage, we're, the industry at the time, I mean, the port industry is, is a very long-lived industry. We're over 300 years. And undoubtedly, there's a certain amount of rivalry between companies. Many people at the time when Taylors introduced late bottle vintage said, you know, that's going to probably damage vintage port, but it'll damage Taylors as well. This idea that you would try to knock out a competitor. And of course, that didn't happen. And it became very successful. And, and Graham's then actually followed in 1978. So it took them eight years to respond and and see that market potential. Of course, now everybody uh, sells that but you're you're absolutely right to point out that the reserve category, which is a little bit younger, so that sort of tends to be three to four years old, also aged in those large wooden vats because we're, we're trying to retain all that fresh berry fruit flavors, all that blackcurrant, blackberry, all that lovely intensity that, that goes so well with chocolate or with strong flavored cheeses. It's that reserve category that has really seen explosive growth around the world. And you've got great expressions of it, which is Fonseca's Bin 27. But other brands are out there, Wars Warrior is there, you know, Graham Six Grapes, Sanderman's Founders Reserve. All these brands and and names are all in the same sort of reserve category of port. Very popular. A fantastic, in my view, a fantastic way to come to port, to discover port.
0: Port is one of those categories I feel like we're often opening bottles with a lot of age on them that were made in a different era, both in terms of the area itself and the people in charge. And who are those people? Alistair Robertson, Bruce, what were they like? As people, what were they like? when they were making those wines. Uh, very different characters.
2: Alistair as the CEO of the business, um, very sort of English, very reserved almost, and was, was often characterized as being very much Taylor-Fladgate. Because when you talk about port companies, you talk about house styles, and, and that Taylor-Fladgate house style tends to be more reserved. It's quieter in a sense. And you go to complete opposite with Fonseca. Fonseca is a very voluptuous style of port. As opposed to reserved, it would be very much sort of more Mediterranean. It comes out, it embraces you. So it's got this sort of richness and forwardness. And and Bruce, you know, very much was a person who absolutely encapsulated that. He was a great bon vivant. He spent lots of time with stories. He spent a lot of time traveling around the world, explaining to people how port was made and, and
0: frankly, and regaling some fantastic stories about port. So very different characters. So it's interesting that the people themselves are actually kind of personifying the brand.
2: I think that's true. I think when you've got a brand like we've got, you know, that's perhaps several hundred years old, it will go through the cycles that will reflect the people who are the current custodians of it. I think you always with that sort of situation where you've got a company with a lot of age, there's a lot of respect for tradition, and all that has gone before that has helped to inform the brand. But I think we've always, as a business, had a degree of a pioneering aspect. We've always been willing to try to um, look for the next way forward. We spend a lot of money on research and development. We create new approaches. We tend to think that um, there's lots, or in my view, you know, there's lots of different ways you can contribute to quality. You know, I think our business is very similar to most businesses. It's all about the detail. You know, detail, detail, detail. That's all that matters. And if you get the detail right, you're going to end up with something good. And the, the approach to that would be to say that, you know, making a good glass of port is probably about 20 different processes from picking in the vineyards to, you know, how you handle the grapes to the way you make the port. All of these processes, about 20 of them. And if you can look at that and analyze those and improve each of those by 1%, the end of 20 different processes, you're going to have quite a substantial difference. A lot of people ask us, why do we still foot-tread? And and bearing in mind that our company probably represents about 60% of all foot-treading that still exists in the Dora Valley. And to put that in context, that's about 2,000 tons, which we tread with about 400 people over the month of the harvest. The process of foot treading, of course, can be replicated by machines and we do have modern machinery. However, we would determine that foot treading produces a difference of one, one and a half percent. And the difference between, you know, great wines and things that are truly exceptional is often in that last one or two percent. So that's why we persist in doing it. And so in in doing that and in trying to sort of push that envelope, invariably, you know, the generation that's involved is also to some degree stamping its
0: personality. What were the challenges when you stepped in to the chairman's role?
2: What happened in the 1960s towards the end of the 60s was that with declining sales, there was consolidation in the industry. When I joined in 1994, we were still in very much a growth phase, particularly here in the United States. I looked after, in my first four years in the business, I looked after the US market and the UK market, which probably represented about 60% of our business. Uh, Since then, you know, we've gone on to expand in many new markets around the world. That's part of what has been the important challenge in the last 20 years, has been the ability to take our ports to many different corners of the world. We all talk about globalization. We all experience globalization in our jobs. But it is real, and there are consumers in far-flung places of the world that are looking to buy great bottles of port and have port as part of their lifestyle. So we've seen um, a huge increase in the number of markets. We've seen a time when there's been, uh, again, substantial changes taking place, particularly in distribution. Again, I point to the United States because – you go back 20 years, there were many, many different wholesalers and distributors in each state. Uh, we saw through the 90s and into the first decade of this century a lot of consolidation, uh, making these huge behemoths of uh, businesses. And indeed, that continues. And uh, in, in recent days within the brewing industry, we've seen one of the largest deals that, that's probably ever taken place. So, this consolidation in distribution has remained uh, or become a big challenge. I think also at the same time, In many markets of the world, you've seen a substantial shift away from traditional retailing, independent wine specialists, regional wholesalers have now become supermarket chains and much Uh, greater uh, systems of distribution. And that's come, if we look at Europe, I mean, you take Italy or or now with Portugal, uh, that's come because of funding in in roads and infrastructure that have drawn countries together and meant that those sort of regional specialists no longer have the same raison d'etre as a a large company able to service an entire market. So uh, we've seen that shift. Um, in distribution we've seen at the same time increased globalization increased demand, but we've also come through a phase in recent years where we've again had substantial amount of consolidation that was caused primarily by the Uh, major drinks uh, spirits companies who had got into the port industry in the late 60s and early 70s, really exiting out of that 30 years later when they were deciding that they needed to rationalize their portfolio, focus on their spirits brands, and no longer had room for something like a port, which is a a very long-term business. After all, if you make vodka... Typically, you age vodka in the bottling line. You know, it's made, it's bottled, it goes to market. You know, in our case, the youngest thing that we sell at Taylor Fladgate is about six years old. Um, and so, to that extent, it takes a very long time and has a has a very different perspective. And Croft was one of those brands. Absolutely right. I mean, you know, is a very interesting example because that was a company that uh, was founded in 1588. So the year of the Armada um, had been through in a family for many many years. The Croft and the Thompson family really started that business they were so interrelated that by the middle of the 18th century in about um, 1755 when i think the sixth uh, marriage had taken place between the thompson family and the croft family over the you know the last couple of hundred years, they decided to have an exchange of these very large silver platters. You know, one for the Thompson family, one for the Croft family, and we're lucky enough we still have that that great silver platter in the company. But it just shows that you know this, there was a family business developing over the generations, and of course, but you get to the early part of the 20th century, and by that stage, you know, Croft has gone into ownership of the Gilby family. The Gilbys become part of. United Distillers, which becomes part start of Diageo. Diageo then makes the decision that it's going to exit the uh, port business. And we were able to buy that in 2001. You know, is and is used to be considered the, one of the first growths of the port industry. But to a certain extent, it had lost its way in the, in the 80s and 90s, when much of the rest of the port industry was investing substantially in, in vineyards and in new technology. They didn't really have the resources to do that. So we bought the business. And it's, it's been exciting taking it back to its origins, back to what makes it great, which, of course, is this fabulous property called Quinta de Rueda.
0: Which used to be a Taylor Vineyard, right?
2: Well, it was a Taylor Vineyard. That's absolutely right. John Fladgate. So what? You know, our full name of our company is Taylor Fladgate and Yateman. And Mr. Fladgate, John Fladgate, who was in the business for about 50 years in the middle of the 19th century, he, in fact, became a personal owner of uh, Quinta de Rueda. He was very instrumental in trying to eradicate phylloxera, which hit our region in 1868. And he did a many, many experiments at de Roeda to try to see if there were solutions to phylloxera. And so much was the work that he did. He was rewarded by the uh, Portuguese state by being made a baron. So he became Baron Fladgate of Roeda. When he died in 1890, uh, just before his death, he actually sold the company to the, the Croft family. One of his daughters was married into the Croft family, and, and that transaction took place. And you know, it's delightful for us that you know cycle forward to to 2001. It comes back into our ownership and allows us now to focus on on the redevelopment of Quinta which. As a Portuguese poet once said, if the um, Douro is a ring of gold, and, and, and the point about that, Ouro is, is gold in Portuguese, so Douro, of gold. So if the Douro River is a ring of gold, then Roeda is the diamond in the center of it. And, and I think that's a very nice way to th- think of a vineyard in those very special terms.
0: And before Varjelos, it had been sort of a mainstay of the Taylor production. Well, in you know, we were very lucky in a sense because by John
2: Fladgate selling the property in 1890, the company didn't have a major vineyard in the Douro. And so it sought out one and bought Quinta de Vajalas. So we buy Quinta de Vajalas in 1893. And at that stage, it was again ravished by phylloxera, very low productions, about six pipes of port only, and again set about the replanting it. And in fact, the replanting that took place in the turn of the century, so sort of 1900, 1904, 1908, that sort of period, uh, saw the construction of these huge great terraced walls, which are undoubtedly a very major feature of uh, Kinstevachellas today. They're very they're very iconic. You know, they can be certainly in human engineering terms, I think you can like them um, the work that went into doing that and indeed into the entire valley of the duro to the sort of work that goes into machu picchu and it, it really is of an extraordinary dimension uh, as a business you know we've got 110 miles of dry stone walls with an average height of 10 foot that we maintain so this is this is what the, the topography of, of the duro is like but that replanting and that regeneration of fashalas clearly paid huge dividends for our company and it's made you know, if I us into something very, very special over the last, um, you know, 120 years or so.
0: So that vineyard and then the Croft brand join in 2001. And that's interesting timing given the world market that such a large consolidation would happen right at that moment. The thing that had sparked it was that Diageo had teamed up with uh,
2: Pono Ricard to buy Seagram and the two of them would come together, that meant that suddenly Sanderman and Croft were in the same sort of ownership, they decided at that stage in their rationalization to sell those port brands. You know, we felt that Croft, with its extraordinary history with its phenomenal vineyard and let's face it we are talking about wine here so we have to think first and foremost about the vineyards the vines the quality the terroir these are all the most important aspects of any wine business and and because of that we felt that we wanted to buy it we made an approach we took a medium to long term view and bought it but you know the story uh, as it unfolded was that the sales process was taking a little bit of time the harvest in 2001 was set to start on the 17th of September. I was impatient certainly to get on and get this purchase done in such time that we would be able to control the harvest of 2001. So it was on September the 10th, 2001, that we bought the company, which was, until that moment, you know, the biggest investment we had ever made uh, as a business. And of course, as we all know, you know the following day, uh, events here in New York uh, changed the world very radically. But I think that, um, again, this would go back to the fact that being a family business, we can take the the long-term view. And whilst certainly that shock and the subsequent uh, after-effects of that shock in terms of denting consumer confidence around the world, you know, we've been able to pass through that, and we've now got a brand, Croft, that is back in producing you know, some of the very best quality vintage ports and certainly is back to the level that would undoubtedly, in our opinion, justify it being considered a first growth of the port industry.
0: So you described the styles of Fonseca and Taylor already, but what would be the style of Croft today? What is it like now?
2: One of the things that we look for in Croft and, and feel that Croft expresses is the quality of the fruit, the purity of the fruit. And it's that clarity and, and cleanliness and purity of that fruit that's so important. So when you taste a young vintage port from Croft, you get this, this real sort of cassis and this blackberry, these very dense, pure fruit flavors. And I think that's one of the joys of port, that although it's a fortified wine and, and has you know 20% alcohol, we, in fact... You can talk a little bit, perhaps, about the, the spirit that we use to fortified ports, because we've done a lot of work as a business on that. But we're looking very much for things that are very pure spirit, very high quality, very pure spirit. Of course, our spirit is made from the distillation of white wine. And our um, you know head winemaker, David Gimrines, will, has, has worked very hard on this, spends a lot of time going over to Bordeaux, where we buy a spirit, uh, tasting and blending that spirit. But looking for the purity, why is that important? Because when you get to something like Croft, you know... Let's remember a bottle of port, 20% of what's in a bottle of port started off as spirit. So, But the spirit only has one job, and that is to stop the fermentation. So once it's done that, you don't really want it to get in the way of the message to the palate, if you like. And the quality of the spirit had now meant that that purity of fruit can really fully express itself. The spirit being very pure, very neutral, the fruit comes through. And I think that is one of the things that is going to help take an you know, acroft back up to the, the level of a first growth, because you've... The expressiveness of it is is so important. Of course, that comes with the tannins, the structure, and you know sometimes uh, you know you, you can look at tannins as being sort of quite big and broody or quite tight and sinewy. In the sense here with Croft, we always think of them as quite silky and quite smooth. They're very evident. There's power. There's longevity in these wines. You know, certainly a young vintage port being made today could last easily, you know, thirty, forty, fifty years. Um, That's not to say you have to wait that long to drink it, but they have the tannic structures there. But again, the tannins don't get in the way of the purity of fruits. You don't get the astringency that you might get from a very young uh, Cabernet or something that
0: that is big and extracted. And what other items besides vintage port are part of the Croft brand? Well, Croft has nowadays something called Croft Pink,
2: which is a rose port. So in 2005, I came up with the idea of doing a rose port. It took actually three years to bring that to the market. And that's not because we weren't able to make it. We, uh, you know, I challenged the winemaking team to come up with. Rosé port, and they did a number of experiments. We tried it at different alcohol levels as well. We tried it at twenty percent, but at nineteen, and a little bit lighter. But Why felt, was that
0: important to you to develop a rosé?
2: In my mind, you know, rosé has always been an important part of the wine market, and you, you look at places like France where rosé represents 17% of all wine that's consumed. So clearly there's a lot of people out there who are consuming rosé, enjoy that style. And so I felt that that was an opportunity for us in the market. I also think that it was something that was able to potentially attract new consumers to the category. You know, when we took this to market, we was very much launching it as port without rules the whole idea that you know you could be a little bit more irreverent with it you a little bit more experimental with it and indeed when we brought it to the market here in the united states you know we didn't go to the sommelier we went to the barman and said look here is this new thing you know try it over try it mix it with a cocktail let's do some fun things with it but it took a while to launch primarily because the you know when I, when I went to our regulator, and port is a very heavily regulated industry, I went to our regulator and said, look, um, I'd like to make rosé port. The regulator said, you can't. And I said, well, we can. Here it is. It tastes jolly good. And he said, no, 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 no. Irrespective of, of what it might taste like, you know, the point is that the regulations say that port has to be either white or red and there was no room for making a rosé so I said okay well what do we have to do to solve that and he said well we've got to change you'd have to change the law and in order to change the law the entire industry would need to make a request to Parliament and that really wasn't going to happen and for a number of reasons some and some of our competitors would have simply said you know not over our dead bodies will we have something like rosé uh, and others simply would have have copied and therefore there wouldn't have been a competitive advantage so it took a little time to work uh, through that and, and, and leafing through the sort of regulatory environment, we came up with a solution to it. And that was that you can sell port using a brand name. And so I managed to get the brand for or the, the trademark for the word pink for alcohol in Europe. So suddenly we had a trademark pink. We decided to use the Croft brand primarily because it felt that it would you know, We felt it would fit in better with the consumer who had become more used to seeing different sort of types of croft in, in the market because there had been a, a croft brandy produced. So there was already sort of some degree of extension within croft. Croft brandy uh, still exists. And it's very jolly jolly good. So to come to the market with croft of trademark, uh, pink as a trademark, and then just called it port. Of course, we put it in a clear glass bottle so that the consumer understood it as as rosé. And we launched it on Valentine's Day 2008. And by July two thousand and nine, the law had changed, and and now many people make it. And in fact, rosé port now accounts for over one percent of the port industry. So, you know, it has been a success. Um, It has provided incremental growth, and I think it has done what we hoped it would do, and that is bring a number of new consumers to the category, giving people new a, a new thing to try and a new way to consume port.
0: So, is that a sannier? Do you run off juice to make the other juice more concentrated in the vat?
2: What we do with it is we use the traditional port grape, red port grape varieties. We put them through a bladder press. Actually, we leave it on skin contact for about twelve hours, and then what we do that is different from making normal port is that we, in fact, do a cold fermentation, which takes about ten days. So normally, when you make port, and you do it in a lagar or an open tank treading on it, you know, the process takes from about harvesting to the fortification moment takes around three and a half days. You remember, you know, fermentation follows a, a half life. So over about three and a half days you will half the sugar will have fermented out into alcohol and so on in another three and a half days, another half and so on. So to make red wine takes your 12, 14 days or whatever, but for port, three and a half days. By putting our, and we do this with white as well, by whites, the roses, by putting them in a, a tank and chilling the tank down to 15 degrees centigrade, we therefore slow down the fermentation. And by doing that, it helps to bring out all of these more delicate aromas. But of course that allows us then with that more delicate strawberry, raspberry sorts of flavors, with the neutrality of the spirit, to then be able to play that in different ways when it comes to making cocktails. You know, if you put it in a shaker with some ice and a peel of orange and a a leaf of mint and shake that, you'll get something that comes out almost slightly Campari-ish, you know, a little bit of the bitters come out. But I've seen other people do lots of things with it. When we came to the United States to do some test marketing, uh, in Texas we had a customer called Little Big's, which is a restaurant in Houston, and they they bought a lot of it, and we were sort of very interested to in know what they were doing. And they had decided they were going to put it straight in a slush machine. And it made a slush. Any port will make a slush because of the sugar and the high alcohol. You know, it won't freeze. So, you know, for those people who, for example, people listening who've got a, um, a machine that they use to make their ice creams, at home you know you can use that machine so you know there's tremendous versatility that comes from port and from the different styles of port and i think croft rose has certainly helped to open our eyes up and, and it's certainly been very successful in capturing the interest of mixologists and
0: bartenders around the country and around the world so three companies and really a introduction of initiatives to address what is a declining market for vintage port globally That was
2: true at that time. I think we would now
0: characterize it as slightly
2: different is that, you know, vintage port impacted in growth. Uh, We recently had the declaration of the 2011 vintage port, which was very, very well received vintage port is exceptional in quality. It's also exceptional in value. Um, in you think quite,
0: it represents good value because it's undervalued in the market today? Well, I think it is. I mean,
2: quite clearly, when you can buy a 12-bottle case of port for less than a single bottle of a first growth from Bordeaux, quite frankly, it it is. It's also made in significantly lower quantities. So if you look at the taylor Fladgate 2011, we made around about 14,000 cases of that and that would be typical of the amount we make when we make a declaration. We make a declaration three times a decade. So in the course of a decade, we've we're making forty thousand cases. Well, a top chateau is making forty thousand cases every year. And so in the course of a decade, you know, it's four hundred thousand cases. So one tenth of the production. And I think yes, what we're seeing at the moment is that it's very undervalued. And for people who who are looking for exceptional wines that are uh, very realistically priced, vintage port is is undoubtedly a very exciting category to, to enjoy and to, uh, to try and buy.
0: One of the categories that your other competitors in the region have taken up to maybe address a different kind of market for vintage port over the last few years is dry red wine from the Douro. Your company has not, and why not? There's a lot of dry red production in
2: the Douro Valley, and, and in fact there has some very strong historic precedences because when the production of the Douro Valley first started, a lot of it was dry Red wine, And it only really took until the early part of the 19th century where people really said, no, no, if we're going to make port. Port is the fortified wine with the spirit. And that's what port is. But yes, in recent years, you've seen major changes in the Douro Valley. I alluded earlier to the fact that infrastructure has changed all around Europe. Portugal has certainly been a beneficiary of that. So the Douro is much easier to get to. Pinau, for example, which is right in the heart of the Douro, used to take us three and a half hours, four hours to get to. Now we can get there. In under two hours. And so a lot of the absentee landlords who were owning big estates essentially are now able to visit and have younger generations of their family who've got involved. And the logical thing for them to get involved in doing is to make table wine and take that to the market. I think from our perspective, we have a position where we are the leaders in special category ports. We represent about a third of the world's special category ports. We have a competitor who's about another third. And then the entire rest of the industry is the last third. And we're seeing growth. We're seeing growth in demand for reserve ports, for LBVs, for aged tawnies that we produce, um, and certainly for vintage ports. So in a sense, keeping up with that uh, growth in demand from this expanding world that I described earlier really means that we need all of our grapes to be able to focus on keeping up with demand needs. And as a result, we don't have spare grapes to make table wine. Others do, and they do it, and they do it exceptionally well. But we at this moment feel that we should focus on what we have been doing extremely well for the last 300 years. And we, as I say, need to use all those grapes. Because what you've got to remember is that Something like Taylor Fladgate or Fonseca, you know, have a reputation for making some of the best wines in the world. Albeit well, they're fortified wines, but they're some of the best wines in the world. And so the expectation that would be on us if we were to go into the table wine business would be not just that it was one of the best things produced in the Douro Valley, but that it was on par with some of the best table wines of the world and in order to do that we would need our very best grapes well they wouldn't then be available for making vintage port so we have to make choices um, and we've chosen to focus on what we know well where we have got tried and tested ways over centuries that we know how to make
0: great port and we're sticking to doing that at the moment you've mentioned infrastructure a number of times how has the change in infrastructure really affected the production side of what you do on a daily basis there's a couple of ways to look at that. If we if we take infrastructure in its more general term that I've been using, which is
2: all about roads and and connection, our winemaker David, for example, can can get around all of our wineries in in one day. That would wouldn't have been possible twenty years ago, even in, twenty years ago, even twenty no, it's years. It's not two
0: hundred years ago. No, no, 20, twenty years ago. But,
2: to give you an idea, I mean, the, the Douro Valley is a river valley that's been dammed. It shouldn't really be called the River Douro anymore. It should be called the Douro Lakes, because there are actually a series of five major dams, and it has produced electricity. We didn't get electricity at Kinstead of Argelis until 1978. That is a new, new thing, incredible, that we can be talking here about the fact that electricity is something that is fairly recent. But that is another example of how things have fundamentally changed in the Douro. So you can get there. You can get about it quickly. You can shift grapes. You pick them in one vineyard. You can move them 30 miles down the road to the right winery, To deal with those grapes to bring them together perhaps with some grapes from another vineyard where the two of those fermenting together will produce the best results you can make those sorts of choices in the past those choices weren't available you picked locally you made it locally and you then obviously had the challenge of getting the product out of the valley down to where it's aged in the city nowadays we don't age as much in the city. We age an awful lot more back up in the Dora. Why? Oh, is that true? Yeah, because we can build wine ha- warehouses up there. Uh, we've got temperature control systems. That means we can replicate the temperature and humidity that we have in the down by the coast. So we're no longer using city-centre land when we can use something that's much closer to the vineyard. And it's a small example, but it's all these bits that come together. You know, that's why I say that it's all about the details.
0: It's all the little pieces as you add them all together. And it allows for new products to be introduced. It doesn't sound like the rosé could have been produced in a different era.
2: Well, it certainly couldn't have been produced without the ability to do a cold fermentation that required electricity. So, yes, by definition, it could only have taken place in the last 30 years. Like all of these things that when you make it, everybody turns around and says, well, that's no big deal. That was obvious. Well, everything's obvious once it's been made. Um but it was innovative at the time. And I think, you know, we've continued to innovate. I mean, one of the nice things that we're doing in recent years, is we've been able to launch and bring to the market some of the historic old ports that we've got. Things like the um, Coleto, in, in Portuguese called Colheita. we tend to use the word, English translation that single harvest. So single harvest aged tawneys we brought to market as something called Sion, which was from 1855. About a year ago, we brought the 1863 to market. And, you know, although that might be $4,000 for a bottle, I would argue that it's incredibly reasonable for what it is and what is it. It's a time capsule. Here is a port that was made in that harvest that's been aged in a wooden cask, a wooden barrel in our cellars for all of this time, and we put it in a bottle and we bring it to the market. Now, as I say, it might be expensive, but we've done other examples of that. We've, for example, launched the 1964, the 1965, and and later on this year, you'll you'll see the 1966 coming, single harvests. These are specifically designed for people who perhaps are having a 50th celebration whether it be 50 years of marriage 50 year birthday or whatever but again that's a piece of time piece of a capsule this idea that there is something that that is 50 years old that you can buy and taste and and reminisce of of those times gone by
0: with vintage port i feel like it's widely understood that each house has its own style but i hear that conversation much less with tawny port however the tawnies that you produce under the different labels seem to have a different style how would you sum up that style the
2: house style is clearly the way I've expressed it earlier in terms of what what it means for Taylor Fladgate in that sort of you know, more austere, more reserved approach. The that more, carries through the, the more exuberant style of Fonseca is there as well, and that carries through. Why it, it is harder to discern than you would in a vintage port, simply because the process of making aged tawny means that you are aging in these small barrels you are doing an oxidative process. We lose about 3% a year in evaporation. And so, you know, to make one bottle of 20-year-old, we had to start with the equivalent of do 20 years ago. And because you're evaporating and concentrating that down, there will be overriding flavors that you will encounter in all age tawnies. So those sort of dried fruit aromas, raisins, white raisins, the glacé a cherry, the, the sort of dried apricot flavors, the honey, all of those may be common to age tawnies. But then beyond that, yes, you will see the house style coming through.
0: As infrastructure has changed, so has climate, apparently. How has that affected what you do?
2: Today, the weather patterns are much more unstable. So it's not uncommon that you'll find that in a day you can get the sort of rainfall that you might have got in a whole month. So, And we see that around the world. You, there isn't probably a week that goes by without somebody reporting some sort of extraordinary climatic activity somewhere in the world. We in the Dura are not immune to that. How does it affect us? Obviously, being a, an industry where the base of our industry is as an agricultural product, we are farmers, weather is hugely important. and you know, If we get a very dry year, we get less fruit. You know, if we get rainfall in the middle of harvest, we have a poor harvest. You know, one of the things about port is it comes from a number of different grape varieties. So, you know, there's probably five or six main grape varieties that people talk about. The most dominant ones in the Douro Valley are, are Tinto Rige, which in Spain is called Tempranillo, um, Tinto Barroca, uh, Tariga Francesa. Those are the three big ones. Lots of people talk about Torriga Nacional, but it's only about 1.5% of the planting, so it's not actually that prolific, partly because it's a very difficult grape to grow. It's not easy to train, and it actually has small yield. And in a valley that is still dominated by lots of small farmers, lots of subsistence farmers... It's not a popular grape. You know, they're getting paid by weight. And so, you know, they want to grow vines that have big yields. But the the exciting thing about making port and, and talking about climatic conditions is that some year one of those varieties will do well, another year not so well. And by having the option... Of a number of different grape varieties, we have that richness of choice. And of course, one of the great things about port is that it is a blend of a number of different grape varieties. There are no single varietal ports out there. We're not allowed to make them. We wouldn't want to make them because by bringing together a number of grape
0: varieties, you really make a much richer, fuller blend. How much does elevation as well as grape variety factor into a house style of a brand in terms of elevation of where the vineyards are? Taylor's, for example, with its Quinta de Vajal, it's a north-facing bowl.
2: It's further up towards the Spanish border. It's actually hotter. But by being a north-facing bowl, at any one part of the day, probably half of the vineyard is in shadow. So the vines get a little bit of relief. Remember, vines shut down. When you get temperatures in excess of 40 degrees, the vine will stop photosynthesizing it. It literally will stop. So you can't have too much heat The vines need to be able to recover. You'll find further down the valley, uh, for example, Taylor Flaggate's other property, Quinta Terra Feta. It actually sits in the bottom of a bowl, surrounded by large uh, hills. So there's much less air movement, so that tends to almost be a little bit warmer than Vargellas, despite actually being in a very different aspect. But Fonseca, all of Fonseca's vineyards are south southwest facing. As a result of that, not only do they have tremendous exposure to sunshine, but we have, because of the way the our valley works, at the end of every day, typically have a big wind that blows in from the sea. The big diurnal wind effect from probably about six in the evening till eight in the evening, a wind blows through that helps aerate the vines, helps to give them a chance to rest overnight before the following day of photosynthesis. Now you raise a, a, an interesting question about elevation height because that is important, and in the bottom of our vineyards might be. In a 200 foot above sea level, 300 foot above sea level, and rise to 1,000 foot above sea level. And the difference, really, we would characterize between 300 foot and 1,000 foot is probably two weeks. By that, I would say that the flowering will start at the bottom faster, and the flowering then at the top will be ready two weeks later. That's very good when it comes to harvest, because you can harvest starting at the bottom of the vineyard in perfect ripeness. And really, as you harvest, you're going up the hill to get to the top, also picking in perfect ripeness so that elevation allows us to uh, really manage the vineyards very effectively
0: because you don't have to pick the whole slope at the same time
2: you don't pick the whole slope at the same time you're able to make the choices but it also it also means that we can look at where we put various different grape varieties and if you put for example tinter amarella which is tremendous grape it's a it's got a lot of very aromatic characteristics it's a very complex grape variety but it has very tight bunches And so you need to put that somewhere where it's going to be relatively well exposed to wind. In case there's any rain, you want that wind to blow through and knock out the moisture. Otherwise, you know, it's prone to rot. You take Torriga Nacional, which is a very vigorous grape variety. You're probably going to want to put that in some of the hotter parts of your vineyard, which will stress that variety a little bit more and control some of the, uh, the vigor in the plant. So you're playing with microclimates, you're playing with elevation, you're playing with Different grape varieties. Nowadays, you're also playing with different rootstock. You can get your, remember, in our region, you know, the vines typically push their roots down 20 to 30 feet to get to water. But again, that nowadays can be controlled. You can have different rootstock. So there's lots of different complexities. That's why, you know, having highly trained agronomists, viticulturalists, you know, bringing that science part into it is incredibly important. It's an art,
0: but it needs the strong scientific backup. So here you are, and you've launched a number of very successful initiatives since taking over the company, but at the same time, you inherited a strong position from the people that came before you, and you're still in the prime of your life. You presumably have many, many more years to lead the industry. You control directly one-third of the port industry yourself. One-third of the quality port industry. So what is next for you and for port and for the brands that you represent? What is next to do? You know, I see a very optimistic next
2: 20, 30 years for port. There will be some, possibly some further consolidation. There will be some reduction perhaps in the total volume of port. I think as an industry, it's important we shift our mindset away from volume to value. It's not about how much you make, it's how good the quality of the port that you make. So I think there will be some changes. That will probably have an impact on small farmers this consolidation if if you like will happen in the vineyards as much as it will happen in some of the wine companies you know there'll be winners and losers but i think overall that the industry is in a healthy condition and i think the fact that you know we started 300 years ago and it's still um, an important part of today's economy still as as relevant to consumers today as we perhaps were several centuries ago, I think is a great testament to what can be achieved in the Douro Valley by these dedicated farmers and dedicated port shippers.
0: Adrian Bridge of the Taylor Flaggate Group is optimistic about the next 20, 30 years while having a strong grasp on the history of what came before. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you very much indeed. Adrian Bridge, CEO of the Taylor Flaggate Group in Portugal.